All right, uh, open your Bible this morning to Joshua chapter 24. We're going to do a topical study where, uh, you know, we took a break last Sunday. It was more or less our Christmas service. And uh, we'll get back to the life of David in the book of 2 Samuel starting next week. But uh, we're going to look at just a few verses, really, just a few words in Joshua 24 this morning uh, as a way of, of getting us started here in the new year. Joshua chapter 24. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll proceed. Father, I do thank you for your word and appreciate this portion of scripture, Lord, and I pray that it would speak to us. Uh, Lord, it's uh, useless to come and and to uh, think any other thoughts other than you want to speak to us, that you want to uh, come into our uh, experience, Lord, and tell us some things about your love and your grace and your mercy and your power and all those other wonderful things that we depend upon day by day. And so, Lord, take these words written so many years ago, so familiar, Lord, in so many ways, and yet make them fresh and new so that uh, we can get our year started right. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and all those who agreed said, Amen. Uh, As most of you know, some years ago we developed a vision statement for our church. It is being changed to bring change. A radically changed life is what Jesus offers to any and all who believe on Him. The change begins when you first realize you're a sinner and that He's your Savior. God forgives your sin, gives you a new nature, sending His Holy Spirit to live within you. But the change doesn't stop there. God's purpose is to change you day by day to be more like Jesus. One day He's going to take you home to heaven, either in the rapture of the church or when you die physically prior to the rapture. Then, when you are face-to-face with Jesus, the change has begun in you will be complete. Your changed life can bring change to the people you encounter. As you interact with other believers, your love for God encourages them in their own relationship with Jesus. And as you interact with non-believers, they're challenged when you share about Jesus in the context of the amazing changes that He has brought into your life. Being changed is a progressive work. Theologically, it's called sanctification. God begins a good work in you at the moment of your salvation, and then He continues it throughout your life on the earth until you are with Him in heaven, fully and finally perfected. Being changed, therefore, is something we have a hand in. It's something we are to cooperate with. For example, if you get saved at an evangelistic event the counselors will probably tell you that there are four basic things that you'll want to do to further your relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll want to pray, you'll want to read the Bible, you'll want to get into church, and you'll want to share your faith. Then as you get into the Bible, as you begin to read the Word of God, you encounter other things, other behaviors that are consistent with your new life in Jesus Christ that have the effect of furthering His work in you. Jesus presented three such behaviors in his Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. We refer to them as PG and F, praying and giving and fasting. And Jesus, when he talked about them in that sermon, he assumed that we would be doing them. Jesus said, when you do a charitable deed or when you give, and then he said, when you pray, and then he said, when you fast. Uh, He said, when, not if. 
you pray and give and fast. Yet it's been my experience personally and my observation corporately that these are probably the least practiced behaviors among Christians within the church. Regarding giving, the statistics are always pretty dramatic. The average Christian, we're told, gives around 2% of their income to the work of the Lord. When you figure in that there are those who tithe, who give 10%, it means that most Christians are giving nothing or almost nothing to the work of the Lord. It's hard to give a statistical analysis of prayer, especially private prayer. Still, almost any believer will readily admit that they don't pray as much as they ought to or they would like to. And generally, the prayer meetings of a church are going to be the least attended meetings. Uh, if you, through the centuries, if you read you know, Charles Spurgeon or these old guys in the 18, 1900s, early 1900s, uh, they'll always talk about how the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting of the church. And then moving into fasting, fasting has fallen on hard times. There are a number of contemporary Christian Bible teachers who even go so far as to say that fasting is no longer a discipline that Christians ought to practice. Uh, most of them are overweight, but uh, no, I'm not I'm just kidding. Fasting isn't to lose weight, but um, one guy in particular is pretty pretty heavy. But anyway, uh, you'll, you'll encounter that if you do any reading or studying or look at things online, you're going to see a lot of even well-respected Christian Bible teachers say, yeah, fasting is an Old Testament discipline. We don't need to worry about it anymore. I have a little problem with that because in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus is talking to his followers. Uh, he's talking to us and he says, when you give and when you pray and when you fast. Now, we did a four-part series on all this called PG&F earlier in the, or last year. I'd encourage you to go to our website and either download those transcripts or you can watch the videos, whichever is more convenient to you. Uh, just go to our Bible studies page and search for them. Or you can, we have a little search function on the website. You can type in fasting, for example, and it'll take you to the PG&F studies. Today I want to call us to a place of commitment regarding these behaviors in particular, but also to living for Christ in general. Uh, it's the first of the year, it's an arbitrary time, uh, you know, if you study the history of, of calendars and all that kind of thing, there's no particular reason for us to get all excited about a new year, but we do, and in our collective consciousness, uh, you know, whether you make fun of New Year's resolutions or resolves or whatever you want to call them, uh, we are thinking in terms of the past and moving forward. And so it's a good time to uh, do that in our spiritual life as well. Actually, we should do it all the time. Uh, we should always be reviewing our, our spiritual life. But we usually take advantage of the first of the year to do that. And so if we're talking about a place of commitment and maybe rededication, I can think of no better call to commitment than the one Joshua issued to the Israelites in chapter 24 of the book bearing his name. The gist of it is in verse 15 where you read in part, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Common Bible texts can be difficult to unpack because we're already so familiar with them. This statement by Joshua is certainly one of those. You probably have or have had this verse on a plaque or a cross stitch or some other decorative item in your home. We'll have to try really hard to not let our familiarity with it overshadow something new and fresh that the Lord wants to share with us from it. 
Joshua was already at least 90 years old back in chapter 13 where you read, Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. So that was 11 chapters earlier. He was 90 years old. When he issues this famous challenge in chapter 24, he's pretty close to dying. In fact, right after he finished speaking, we read in verse 29 of chapter 24, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And so here he was, an old man about to die. My New King James Version of the Bible even gives as the heading for this chapter, Joshua's Farewell Address. Taking into consideration Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the fact this was a farewell and that he would shortly die, I was struck by the choice of verb tense. It's a small thing, but a significant thing. I half expect him to say to the Israelites, but as for me and my house, we have served the Lord. I almost hear it in the past tense. If I'm not careful, I, I, I seem to understand it that way. I see Joshua, he's old, he's uh, you know, going to die soon. My Bible's telling me this is his farewell address. Uh, you know, it seems like he should be saying, I've faithfully served the Lord, now you do the same. Now, for sure, Joshua had served the Lord. He had had a remarkable spiritual career. He first appears on the pages of Scripture with almost no introduction, although he was obviously very well known among the Israelites. As Moses was leading the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites came to a place called Rephidim, there they were attacked by the Amalekites. From the mountaintop, Moses prayed for the battle with his arms lifted up. When his arms tired, Aaron on one side and Hur on the other held them up and the Israelites had the, wait for it, upper hand in the battle. Now, I, I, you know, for a long time, the Bible was the only thing that people had to read. Uh, and... I wonder sometimes how many of our common expressions do come out of the Bible. And so we talk about people having the upper hand. I believe it's from this episode in the Exodus where literally when Moses' hands were going down, the battle wasn't going too well. When they had his hands up, they had the upper hand in the valley below. Now down below in that valley, Joshua was entrusted as the commander of the ragtag Israeli forces in their very first military conflict out of Egypt. And Joshua led them to victory in the valley below. We next see Joshua accompanying Moses partway up Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. Couldn't go all the way, went partway, but he went a lot farther than most of the Israelites. He seems to have shadowed Moses, especially at key moments. There are even four passages that describe him as Moses' assistant, or we would say personal servant. He was chosen as one of the twelve spies sent forth to survey the promised land. Joshua and Caleb brought back an exciting, favorable report and they argued for immediate entrance into the land. The other ten spies swayed the people's opinion against entering the land. Because of their unbelief, the Israelites were made to wander in the desert for the next 40 years. Only Moses and Joshua and Caleb survived from the generation over 20 years of age that had refused to enter the land. 
Upon Moses' death, Joshua became the undisputed leader of Israel. And then his story really takes off. He led them in a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. They took Jericho with an unusual strategy and its walls came tumbling down. With shock and awe, military precision, Joshua's forces conquered the land. Afterwards, he diplomatically but authoritatively divided the land among the Israelites tribe by tribe. If there's a single episode that captures Joshua's faithfulness and his zeal to serve the Lord... It occurred during the conquest of the land when his forces were fighting the Amorites. Joshua prayed for the sun and moon to stand still so he would have extra daylight to finish the task. Scripture records that his prayer was indeed answered. The sun, quote, delayed going down about a full day. And so that's Joshua. Joshua's like, hey, Lord, we're killing the, the, the uh, Amorites Uh, I need more time to finish this. How about you just have the sun stand still so we can do that? Man, if you're an Amorite, you're in trouble. I mean, you're already losing the battle. And then you think maybe when it gets dark, we can sneak away. Some of us can, you know, and then you're looking at your little, uh, you know, sundial that you have on your wrist and stuff. And it's like, hey, you know, it's it's like it's noon. It's been noon for about three hours. It's like noon for 24 hours and you're being killed and wiped out. This is Joshua. Now, those are merely highlights of an illustrious spiritual career. So here he was, old and advanced in years, on the verge of death, giving a farewell address. Nevertheless, he doesn't say he and his house have served the Lord. No, he says, we will serve the Lord. At the time in which he might have been looking forward to retirement or simply some R&R, he was looking ahead, looking forward, planning a completely spiritual future of continuing His service to God. If I were giving this message a title, it would have to be no quitting for old men. Because there was no quit in Joshua. He was just going to go on until the end. Now something God said, something He told Joshua provides important context context, excuse me, for Joshua's commitment. I mentioned it. It's back in chapter 13, verse 1. But let me just read it to you again. It's where we learn that Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Now, if you read the book of Joshua, you'll see they had accomplished a great deal. But there was still very much land yet to be possessed. The people were looking back too much on what they'd already accomplished. The Lord and Joshua were looking ahead on what still needed to be accomplished and it made all the difference in the world. Where they were looking and how they were thinking about their spiritual lives made all the difference in the world. Calvary Hanford, we've been around 25 years. We've accomplished much. There is still, however, very much land yet to be possessed. And so the questions are, what about you and I? Where are we looking? Are we more like Joshua or are we more like the Israelites? Well, if you're looking back, you're going to be falling back. At a pivotal moment in the classic film, Gone with the Wind, Scarlett looks at Ashley and says, Don't look back, Ashley. Don't look back. It will drag at your heart until you can't do anything but look back. I like that. The Israelites were looking back and it dragged their hearts back as we'll see all the way back into the world 
and into its idolatry. Joshua challenged them to choose whom they would serve. Now their response sounded good. Look at verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua gives a second call to commitment. Uh, I don't know if it's that he didn't believe them or it was just uh, part of how you did this sort of thing in those days. I mean, they're saying, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. And he says, well, look, verse 22, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, "Okay, we're witnesses. Now, the people, I believe, sincerely wanted to serve the Lord. So do we. You know, a lot of times... um, it's just a, a personal thing with me, but I've told you over the years, it's, it's easy to really exhort and rebuke people, make people feel bad, you know, to tell people they don't, they're not you know, very spiritual and they don't do enough of what they want to do. But you know, when I'm sitting uh, you know, listening to that, I think, you know, I really want to do these things. I want to pray more. I want to give more. I want to fast. I want to walk with the Lord. I want to get rid of lingering sin in my life. I don't want to have addictions. You know, I, I mean, I really do want to walk with the Lord. And so when these people are saying, yeah, we want to serve the Lord, absolutely we'll, we'll make a commitment to serve the Lord. I believe them because the heart of anybody who believes in the Lord is really towards that. Now, we may be fooling ourselves. We may have things that need to be dealt with. That's, a, that's the issue. But we, we're sincere. And so we don't need to be beat up about what we already know that we're not doing. We need to be encouraged to do it. And in this chapter, we, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but Joshua builds up to this by giving them the amazing history of Israel, especially their conquest of the land. And when you think about all that the Lord has done for them, all that He had accomplished up to that point, of course you want to commit to Him. Of course you want to go on serving Him. I mean, you and I who are saved, remember what you were saved out of or saved from. Sure, the Israelites, they they got into trials and troubles and they said, you know, I wish I was back in Egypt eating leeks and garlic. You know, we're out here eating manna every day. And and that's the problem. Sometimes in your spiritual life you grow a little bit weary and you think, oh, it was better before. But man, it wasn't better before. You know it wasn't better before. God delivered you. He saved you. I love the language of salvation. You were saved. You were lost, you were on your way to a Christless eternity, your life was uh, in the pits. Sometimes people give her testimony, it almost sounds like they missed their old life. You know, there's all these, uh, and people have amazing radical testimonies, you know, not to take that away, but it almost sounds like they like their, man, I was, I did so much, and I was on a wall, you know. Oh, and, uh, oh, you know, and it's like, wow. And then after all of that, it's like, and then I got saved. And you're like, whoa, whoa, man. You know, my mind is over here thinking about the, ah, you know, and stuff. And it's crazy. God saved you. And so when I read this, I think, yeah, these people, they do. They want to serve the Lord. There's a problem, however, among the Israelites. Verse 23. Now, therefore, he said... Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. This is amazing to me because until now you think this is going to be a warning to them to not get involved with idols in the future. And Joshua says, okay, get rid of the idols that you already have. You're already practicing idolatry. Now, how does that happen? Well, first of all, we all have a propensity to be drawn away by the things of the world, by the lusts of the flesh. We're talking about being progressively changed from moment to moment. The Bible says from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. But we find ourselves in a fallen world 
in bodies of flesh facing the devil and his minions, and it's all really dicey, it's, it's rough. And, and so if we're not careful, these things from the world can creep back in. And so all of us are subject to those kinds of temptations. And, but second, and in the context of Joshua's speech, one of the things I'm trying to draw out here, maybe the only thing that I want you to remember The people were resting, they were relaxing, they were looking back on what they'd accomplished rather than looking forward to what needed to be done. Because God said, there is a lot of land yet to be conquered and nobody's conquering it. Everybody's kind of... They've come a long way. I mean, when you see them back in the Exodus or even in the early days of Joshua crossing over and and, and all, man, they had accomplished a lot. And the idea here is that because they had accomplished so much, they weren't as worried or nervous or concerned or anxious or thinking about what still needed to be done. They were sort of content with where they were at. And the Lord is saying, that's never a good place to be because when you're looking back, you're really looking back. When you're not moving forward, you're looking back. And when you're looking back, it opens something up to come in from the world. Joshua said, incline your heart to the Lord. The New Testament version of that would be Colossians 3.2, where you're told to set your affection on things above and not on the things of the earth. A.T. Robertson writes, the Christian is seeking heaven and is thinking heaven. His feet are upon the earth, but his head is with the stars. He's living like a citizen of heaven here on earth. Uh, John Wesley said, They that are bound for heaven must be willing to swim against the stream and they must do not as most do, but as the best do. There is still much land to be possessed and you know what? There always will be until the coming of the Lord. Don't look back. Not at the things of the world and the things God has delivered you from. Not at things desirable but evil. Don't even look at things that are lawful for you but would distract you. Don't look back either upon spiritual accomplishments. For sure, the Lord will reward you for them in the future. It's not that they're insignificant or that they don't exist, but they don't give you pause to rest or relax or retire from pressing forward. It's dangerous to look back on what you've already accomplished or what the Lord has already done in your life. Remember Lot's wife? As the angels were saving Lot and his wife and their daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah, dragging them out of that city, she looked back and was rained on by the fire and brimstone, turning her into a solid pillar of salt. She stood there, a monument to the decision of her heart, to look back at the things of the world even while it was perishing because it was so evil. She should have been spiritual salt to those people, but she had lost her flavor and her ability to act as a preservative. Looking back makes you into a monument when God is calling you to remain in motion. Now, if you're looking ahead, you're going to be pulling ahead. The Israelites responded favorably to Joshua's challenge. Verse 24, the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. 
And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. In passing, I'd like to point out that archaeologists have discovered Shechem, and they've even found a large limestone pillar they believe could have been this stone that Joshua wrote upon. Now, the Israelites made a verbal commitment to turn from idols and to return to God. Joshua noted it, and he recorded it. Did they go home, bring out their household idols, and destroy them? I'd like to think that some did. After all, love believes all things. They wanted to serve the Lord. Uh, You know, we always think in terms of the Israelites of being always evil all the time, but that's not true. Uh, They're just like us. They're just struggling and and wanting to do the right thing. And so I believe that many of them did, uh, you know, uh, obey this. Love believes all things. Now, before we depart, each to our own inheritance, obviously we ought to take a moment and think about making a commitment to the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning is just have ourselves think of ourselves in relation to the three behaviors Jesus noted that were the lifestyle of his followers. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about, but these are three that Jesus talked about, praying and giving and fasting. With regard to praying, in addition to your personal prayer life, we want to encourage you to join us in 2011 as we pray. Uh, Next week I talked about even one. We have first watch every Saturday night, every Sunday morning. The prayer room upstairs is open before the morning services. In addition to praying, we have communion elements there up in the prayer room on Sundays. Scattered all around the campus always are prayer cards. Uh, we encourage you to fill them out, to turn them in. Most Wednesday nights at Ignite, we have a participation time. and uh, Well, we always have a participation time, and most of those times are prayer times. And then we ask you to send us requests and updates uh, via email to prayer at calvaryhanford.com. And so what we're trying to do is to passively encourage people to prayer. And I, 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 we want to be careful about that. We never want to be manipulating or uh, be overbearing or in some way. If, you, if people don't want to pray, then there's a more fundamental problem. Uh, And so what we can do as a church is not have, you know, uh, seminars where we guilt people into praying and make you feel bad. If you're like me, you already feel bad that you don't spend enough time in prayer. You get to the end of your day and you think, man, why didn't I get up 15 minutes earlier? And, And you don't need anybody to beat you up about that because you beat yourself up about it. What you need is to have reasonable opportunities to come together and pray with other believers. And so we're going to provide those Uh, throughout the year, and I'd encourage you to plug into some of them. You don't have to come to everything. Uh, Just come to some of them and see what the Lord will do uh, with that. Now, with regard to giving, I'd ask that you review how much you give to the work of the Lord. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of instruction and direction in the Bible about giving. Let me summarize a few key principles that you'll find in Scripture. First of all, every believer is called upon by Jesus to give to his work. That should come as no surprise, really. Giving here means money. Serving is an act of love and obedience, but nowhere in the Bible does it say we can substitute serving for giving. They're two separate delights that we get to participate in. We're told that giving is to be regular and systematic. 
It can be weekly in the offering or offering box. It can be monthly. It can be quarterly, if that's how your finances work. It can be mailed in or given online. But it's to be done regularly and systematically, just like the rest of our financial life. New Testament giving is described as being sacrificial. So it, it does cost you something. I like this. Giving is to be done cheerfully, not grudgingly. God loves a cheerful giver. When the basket comes around, you should be laughing, belly laughing. <laughs> there goes my money. You know, a few years ago, they had what they called the laughing revival in, uh, I think it was somewhere in Florida, and uh, where people, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit would fall upon people and supposedly they would just start laughing uncontrollably. Uh, and I, I, when I first heard that, I thought, man, I wonder if they're taking an offering during that time. I mean, you know, if that's what's happening, because that is the, should be the most hilarious time uh, of the whole morning. But you're not laughing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> or you're going to make ne- next week, you're going to, I know it's going to happen. You're going to have like a little email campaign behind my back. And, uh, and next week you're going to say, hey, during the offering, we want you to just break out laughing. And then, 99% of you won't do it, and one poor guy will just be laughing, uh, and uh, it won't be me. But anyway, uh, so, and then now listen, the portion you give to the Lord is left up to you. Jesus told the rich young ruler, he said, I want you to give everything you own and have to me and follow me, because he knew that young man's heart. He had great possessions, and that is what was keeping him from a full commitment to the Lord. But the portion you give... Uh, is left up to you. The New Testament sets no limit on giving, like 10%. You're free to give as God leads. But here's what we like to say. God's leading will not be less than what the Old Testament saints gave. And here's why. We're not under the law. We're motivated by love. We're to give because of love and not because of fear of breaking the law. And so when we get together with the Lord and say, Lord, how much do you want me to give to your work Uh, we're not really thinking in terms of a percentage, we're thinking in terms of a relationship and having the Lord speak to us. Having said that, it makes no sense that we would give less because of love than we would under the law. Love sets us free to give more, to be more generous. We want God to be gracious, not legal. Isn't that correct? We don't want God to deal with us according to the law. We want Him to deal with us according to love. And so those are just some things for you to think about. Now, with regard to fasting, I want to reemphasize that we want to fast as a congregation on the last day of each month. Now, this is the first thing that goes in my life. Uh, I had to almost remind myself that we do this because I love to eat. Uh, It's becoming more and more evident that I love to eat. Uh, Pretty soon we're going to install a ramp here so that that's why we need the money. No, I'm just kidding. But... uh, (laughs) I'm asking for money because Pastor Gene can't get on the stage anymore. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I thought, oh yeah, we're fasting the last day of the month, which tells you that I've gotten away from it. All of these things, by the way, I, I'm, we're all in this together. The, you know, nobody's achieved this. Even Paul the Apostle he says, hey, I haven't achieved anything. I just press forward. And he said that 30 years into his walk with the Lord when he'd done more than any of us ever hoped to do. He says, no, let's just think about where we're headed. And so fasting, once a month, on the last day of the month, you can do it more if you like, but let's think about doing it once a month. Be sure you're healthy and take liquids during your fast if you participate. Fasting, uh, 
All these disciplines are for everybody. Fasting's a little bit tricky because there are people who have health problems or health issues and you need to gauge accordingly uh, you know, how healthy it would be. We don't want anybody uh, fainting or anything like that. Again, I'd recommend you get the transcripts from our PG&F series or that you'd watch the videos. And what I want to do right now, very simply, is take a few minutes as we close and just reflect on what we've heard. Let the Lord speak to our hearts. It's a quiet time, a personal time, an individual time. It's not a time of open or corporate prayer. If after you've prayed you feel a need that you want to come forward and physically memorialize a decision that you're making this morning, we're going to have our guys up front and uh, they'd be happy to pray with you. But in the private of your heart before the Lord, ask the Lord to show you if you've been looking back either at the world or at your own spiritual resume. And if you have, just repent of it. And then let the Lord know that you will serve Him in the present tense and looking ahead to 2011 and until He comes for you or for us. All right, let's just have a time of personal prayer.